You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are. Welcome to this uh, ODI event uh, on innovation in Africa and Europe relations beyond COVID-19. It is my pleasure to have so many of you on the line and on this collaboration between ODI, the Bosch Foundation, Gulbenkian and Open Society Foundations. Uh, let me introduce straight away Sandra Breca, who will tell you a little bit more about this event and our partnerships. Sandra is on the, a member of the Board of Management of the Robert Bosch Stiftung, which is, of course, one of the major European foundations. Um, and since joining the Board of Management, Sandra has spearheaded a new recent strategy of the Bosch Foundation, and she's also now responsible for its portfolio on global issues, with focus on climate, democracy, inequality, and of course, migration. And we'll hear more about it in a minute, as well as peace. Uh, she's also responsible for the strategic partnerships and the Robert Bosch Academy. And before joining the Bosch Foundation, Sandra was uh, with the Aspen Institute in Berlin. Sandra, over to you to give us some opening remarks and to tell everyone a little bit about uh, what we're working on together. Thank you, Marta, for this kind introduction and good afternoon from Berlin. It is my pleasure to welcome you to this event on innovation in Africa, Europe relations beyond COVID-19, whenever that will be. Today's discussion is the first of a series that we initiated together with the Overseas Development Institute and in collaboration with the Gulbenkian Foundation and the Open Society Foundation. The objective is to assess the current political landscape, common ground and divisions on migration and mobility, as well as the opportunities for collaboration and how to strengthen partnerships in and between Africa and Europe. This conversation could not come at a more timely moment, both as we face the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic and at a critical juncture for the relationship between Africa and Europe with the EU-AU summit next spring. It is an honor to have our distinguished speakers, Obi Ezekwesili and Sir Suma Chakrabarti with us today. With the challenges for a post-COVID recovery for both continents ahead, why talk about migration and mobility now? When in fact, mobility has been interrupted. In fact, the world has effectively come to a standstill if you talk about the mobility since the beginning of the pandemic. And with the consequences of a dramatic increase in human suffering, refugees and migrants stuck in transit, as well as an impact on human and economic development through the limitation of travel, as well as student and labor mobility. Migration and mobility as one pillar for next year's summit between the EU and the African Union are crucial also for future relations and the COVID recovery for both continents. And in many cases, these are very contested subjects. But it is not only the major policy areas such as irregular migration or legal pathways that are essential for the future of the relationship. It is also the question of what a partnership should entail and if taken seriously, which consequences this must have for the various policy fields discussed at the summit. Actors such as civil society, cities, academia and think tanks, as well as the private sector, are often spearheading innovation 
and deliver best practice in the implementation of successful partnerships. They can help shape new instruments and ideas for these partnerships. With this series, as well as other projects and activities, we want to support different actors, mayors and cities, civil society, academics and thought leaders across Africa and Europe to join forces in the months leading up to the EU-AU summit. We want to encourage a conversation around innovative approaches and shared issues in the broader context of migration and mobility in conjunction with a green transition and sustainable development. Before handing over to the moderator of this session, Marta Forrest from ODI, let me again thank our two speakers who are joining us, as well as our partners. I believe now more than ever collaboration between foundations is crucial to work towards shared goals, bringing our diverse perspectives, expertise, and the many innovative approaches of all of our grantees and partners to the table. It is great to have you on board for this. I look forward to today's discussion and hand over back to you, Marta. Thank you so much. And thank you, Sandra. It is a delight as I said, to, be, uh, to be working with you on this. And I will tell you a little bit more about what to expect next, the next steps in this collaboration uh, towards the end of this meeting. Um, let me just share a few housekeeping uh, uh, notes. Um, first of all, for those of you who use Twitter and social media, the hashtag for today's event is Innovation Africa Europe, one word. Um, we will have time for uh, questions and answers with, with the audience. So please begin now, in fact, to put your questions on the chat and I will make sure to put them to our speakers um, in a minute. Um, now on to our speakers. Um, first of all, you can see on the screen, Sir Suma Chakrabarti. Suma is the chair of the ODI board and he served until very recently as the president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development uh, from 2012 to 2020. Um, and prior to this, he was permanent secretary at the UK's Department for International Development, now of course merged into the Foreign Office, into the FCDO and at the Ministry of Justice. So it brings a wealth of expertise on Europe, the UK and international relations and cooperation. We also have with us, not quite on video, but uh, I trust on audio, uh, Obiageli Edzeksuzvili, otherwise known as Obi, who um, we have some technical issues. So Obi for now is joining us um, on audio, but um, she's very much uh, following the discussion. Obi was the Vice President of World Bank's region for Africa, um, and in which she was since 2007. She's currently a Senior Economic Advisor at the Africa Economic Development Policy Initiative, and was, of course, candidate for the Office of the President of Nigeria in 2019, so very, um, very recently. She's also a fellow, a Richard Weissenker Fellow at the Robert Bosch Foundation. So this will be a conversation between me, Suma and Obi. Um, we very much hope that the technology will assist us one way or the other. We always have WhatsApp um, uh, as a backup plan should connections fail. Um, but let me start by asking both of you, Suma and Obi, for your initial reflections on where we are today by starting where we were about a year ago. And of course, um, this year 2020 was not like any other years, of course. So at the beginning of the year, it certainly felt that the relationship between Africa and Europe was very high on the political agenda. It certainly was at the top of Ursula von der Leyen as she launched her new commission. She famously um, uh, went on a trip to Addis Ababa as the first, almost the first action since being appointed and made an equitable partnership between Africa and Europe um, a, a pillar of her strategy um, uh, for the new commission. 
fast forward a year, and of course it feels we are in a different world, um, COVID has struck. Um, I'd like to know from you, how has COVID changed the prospect of this partnership? Is it less or more of a priority today and for whom? Sumer, do you want to go first? Well, thank you very much, uh, Marta. I mean, let me, let me just start um, by saying how pleased I am, Sandra, to you about this collaboration between ODI and the Bosch Foundation, also with the Open Societies Foundations and the Gulbenkian Foundation. I actually do think, as you said in your opening, it's really important for think tanks, foundations to work together to try and bring innovation to this relationship between Africa and Europe, the heart of policymaking, if you like. Let me also say a welcome to Obi, who I got to know quite well when she was a minister in Nigeria and then vice president of the World Bank, and I was at DFID. It's really good to be uh, on this virtual platform with you, Obi, as well, after all these years. To your question, Marta, I mean, I think the renewed focus on this partnership of equals by the Van der Leyen Commission was certainly very welcome, absolutely was. But I think um, there was a concern, I would say, that it was a, a lot about um, razzmatazz of photo opportunities, statements, visits. And in both Europe and in Africa, I think people are looking really much more these days for delivery of actual outcomes, change, reform, steps really in key policy areas such as trade, of course, development cooperation, but climate, governance, and of course, migration too. So as you said, Marta, if you fast forward now a year, on one reading, everything's changed. But on another reading, I would say that so many of the issues are still pretty much the same. Um, COVID hit both continents pretty hard, but in different ways. In, in Europe, uh, we were, of course, still at the epicenter and still are at the epicenter of the health pandemic. While Africa actually, interestingly, has largely been quite successful in comparison in containing the virus. But we also know the economic impact in Europe, but also in Africa has been enormous. And if you look at the impact in low income countries in Africa, it's been pretty hard. Uh, in fact, I think the uh, continent will have its first continent wide recession for 25 years. And we can already see um, pre existing debt crises that hitting countries like Zambia, which is on the brink of defaulting unless some urgent action is taken by the international community. And that includes Europe, of course, as well. But the trouble that we're in uh, with the EU and international cooperation right now is a lot of effort in Europe is being spent on trying to get internal agreements amongst fairly divided EU member states uh, at a time actually when we need more unity than ever uh, for the COVID reset, I would argue. So you can see that in the ongoing debates and disagreements on the EU budget. Uh, just one example, I think, of this. Member states still can't find eye to eye on some fundamental principles, actually, like the rule of law. And what's the impact of that? Well, it means that the recovery plan approval that was to be approved, I mean, it looks like it's going to get delayed further. Uh, and meanwhile, not just in the EU, but beyond the EU and Europe, for example, in the UK, the pot for international development cooperation is shrinking. I mean, the recent cuts in the UK budget are a signal of that. Uh, at a time when actually, if anything, development cooperation needs to be stepped up, I would argue. So we're in this situation. We can hold our heads in our hands and uh, despair, but that shouldn't be what we should do. I think we need to get back to some basics on what really matters in the relationship uh, for both continents. And here are some ideas uh, I think that we should be putting forward. First, I think we should really stress the collaboration between the two continents, Europe and Africa, is now more important actually than ever. Uh, COVID has taught us 
uh, one thing, and one thing that we should have learned after the financial crisis, is that we need more international cooperation to address global challenges, not less. Uh, and we've got to also learn to build on each other's strengths. For example, I think we Europeans, we need to learn the lessons from the African response to COVID uh, and how crucial actually intra-Africa cooperation was to controlling the spread of the virus. That's something we could learn from. But we also need, I think, to refocus on the most urgent policy issues that Europe and Africa can only address together. They can't address on their own. Trade and climate, of course, the top of the agenda with the post-continue uh, agreement of very clear priority. Development cooperation is going to be needed more than ever to support the COVID reset uh, across Africa. And that will mean, I think, adapting financial instruments and priorities to this new reality. And I have some views on that on the multilateral development banks, which I hope to get a chance to talk about later. We've also got to, I think, um, be upfront in addressing unresolved challenges and disagreements. And migration would be one of the ones that we should really focus on. Hopefully, again, we can talk about that a bit, a bit later as well. I want to just leave you with one thought in, in this first intervention. We tend to talk about this relationship between Europe and Africa as a, really a, almost a state-to-state -state relationship. But actually, both in Europe and in Africa, the private sector is becoming much more fundamental. Uh, certainly in Africa, when I looked at uh, African countries and uh, development plans, private sector development, trade, links with Europe uh, through the private sector, really, really actually at the heart of the new relationship between the two continents. And I think that I like that very much when I was at EBRD. It's part of what I was trying to build in EBRD when we went into North Africa. But I think it's very important to recognize the importance of the private sector to this relationship going forward. Now, 2021 is clearly going to be a very important year for Africa-Europe relations. I mean, COVID has dealt a, a really severe blow to both continents, both in human uh, health and economic terms. Uh, and we need a strong partnership for a recovery. So a lot is now going to depend on the much delayed, but much anticipated EU, AU, African Union uh, high level summit. I think that's going to be a key opportunity, key sort of stepping stone that's going to try and, I hope, determine the future relationship between the two continents. That's what I think we should be pushing for together, all of us. Back to you, Martin. Thank you. Thank you, Suma. So, Obi, hoping that you can hear us. Um, uh, everything has changed. And we have that hopefully will make a difference. Would you agree? Mata, would you be kind to repeat your question? Sorry, I was going to ask you the same question. Um, and the question is whether the COVID pandemic has changed anything in the relationship and the prospects of a partnership, a stronger partnership between Africa and Europe, and also to react to Suma's points that not much really has changed and a lot of hope um, uh, can be put into the summit between the African Union and the European Union next year. Yes. Um, thank you very much. Um, great to see everyone. I um, want to start by saying uh, that a lot has changed and yet not much has changed. Um, a lot has changed because uh, we, frankly, in the world did not at all anticipate a global pandemic as one of the risks to, uh, to deal with in 2020 when the World Economic Forum uh, released its uh, 10 top risks 
uh, to look ahead and plan for and mitigate. Uh, a health pandemic was not one of them. And so the uh, global pandemic has shown us how ill-prepared all parts of the world has been in the way that we have looked at health and the challenges that are associated with it as really either a global public good or a global public bad. And that's a lesson for uh, all sides uh, in this conversation. The second point is that Suma is very right. Uh, the fundamental issues that need to be addressed in fostering a very strong partnership between uh, Europe and Africa, whether it be uh, just a, a, a pure recognition of the fact that our political, historical and political ties, as well as geographic proximity uh, lend themselves to a kind relationship that should be way above the kinds of um, negligible or dare I say um, almost um, uh, a case of the tail wagging the dog conversation that we sometimes have between Europe and Africa. Uh, for example, I am one of the voices that do uh, that, that do not like at all the fact that the conversation between Europe and Africa is often about migration and mobility. Uh, and 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 that that conversation is often looking at migration from the lens of how do we contain the migration of Africans into Europe. And I see it as a classic you know, waste a loss of opportunity and, and possibilities on, on both sides. The, 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 so there are issues beyond my, my migration, issues beyond uh, uh, the mobility uh, that, that we should have at the center of our strategic conversation. Suma made mention of a number of them. I would think that Europe and Africa should look at common zones of prosperity and that the opportunity that we have to enlarge investment and trade between the two continents has not been touched at all. And to that effect, I was always shocked at how Europe looked longingly at what China was doing in Africa. And I, it surprises me that that would happen, that, that, that it would take a China coming all the way that it comes from in order to strike a, 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 a sense of, oh, China, China, China. I mean, I had to tell people in Berlin to stop having to ask me questions about China. I have my problems with China, but I don't want my problems with China being channeled through, uh, uh, you know, the European uh, uh, position on what China is doing. Because I do think that Europe wastes its, its possibilities with Africa in the way that it has perceived the continent. So that my number three point is that beyond the issue of the global pandemic, uh, focusing on very important issue of how uh, Europe and Africa can define the new norm that must follow a post-COVID uh, global world is so crucial. I think that following from my number three point is that the, I, I find it I find it difficult to understand why suddenly Europe decides to shrink every time in the face of the global, uh, rather, in the face of the uh, great power competition between China and, 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 and the US. When, frankly, this offers an opportunity for Europe to rise in special. And Europe rising in special would require Europe acting in, in the interest of the rest of the world and itself by 
building a strong strategic partnership with Africa to bring everyone, no matter how powerful the countries may be, they can't be powerful to themselves alone. The rest of the world would agree to the limits of those powers. And so Europe has an opportunity to partner with Africa strategically to get everybody back to the drawing table in order to design a new multilateral order. The multilateral framework that has worked so far will not take us anywhere post-COVID. And that needs someone. It needs a country as strong as Europe, a continent as strong as Europe, but it cannot cut it alone. Therefore, its natural ally should be Africa. But Europe refuses to see Africa from that strategic level that needs to change the mutuality, the concept of mutuality of interest would do well to lead to the bureaucrats in Europe forgetting for a second the historical uh, relationship that always made them look at Africa from a humanitarian lens. That should be a bygone because now there is opportunity to work together strategically to, to get new rules that would uh, govern the world that takes us ahead from now. Uh, you know, from, from now. And then my, my, my fourth uh, uh, point uh, would be that for Europe and Africa specifically, and in relation to the, uh, to the conversation around uh, migration and mobility, I think that you know, even when you look at the numbers, I think that the, the presence, the African migrants in Europe is exaggerated and data bears that out, that Africa still remains the, the, the lowest percentage of migra migrants in many of the European countries. But somehow it must be a matter of race that gets into the conversation because it is too it is quite obvious when an african is in the midst of europeans but so it makes it seem as as if africa europe is housing many more africans than than necessary the truth is that when you look at the data of where African migrants are mostly going to, they are going to countries within the continent. 57% of migration, it, 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 it happens within Africa. Afri the, 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 the rest, the, about 20, about something just slightly below 20% of the migrants go to Europe and America, and then to the rest of the world. So this amplification of the presence of Africans in Europe gets in the way of a proper conversation on the values of migration. We know that economic theory proves it, that migration is of value. And um, as a matter of fact, migration into Europe cherry picks into the migrant workers that are the uh... I think we might have lost um we'll be in the middle of that impassionate uh, speech about the role of migrant workers I second I'm going to second guess what she was about to say on the uh, in the in the covid uh, in the covid response um as part of the vital workforce in that context I hope to uh, get uh, Obi back um, 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 soon. Um, but on that, uh, given that we're now entered into discussion on migration, first of all, I'm glad to hear that 
you both agreed that a lot still has to be resolved in terms of the strategic partnership between um, Africa and Europe. Um, and um, and let me put to you, Suma, that actually migration stands in the way of that happening because it remains such a point of contentious where, as Obi said, if I can think of an area where we don't seem to be able to move on from old and stereotypical views of Africa from Europe, migration is one. It's always political, humanitarian at best, not always, um, but it rarely gets to some of the pragmatic realities about what's going on here. So notwithstanding the politics, um, tell us a little bit from more of an economic development perspective and the role of the private sector, uh, what can we do about these issues of migration, uh, not just between Africa and Europe, but largely within Africa and Europe and the two continents coming to some kind of a, a more pragmatic alignment on some of those issues? Well, I think it uh, won't be any surprise to anyone who knows me that I share uh, Obi's views on this uh, very strongly. And I think one of the oddest things about this debate is how the data doesn't and the evidence doesn't seem to matter um, to many people, to many policymakers actually uh, in uh, Europe, particularly um, the point she made about migration within Africa is actually a much higher percentage than migration from Africa to Europe. But it's no secret, look, that migration remains a hugely contentious issue in Africa-Europe relationships. I mean, the EU itself actually struggles to find common ground amongst its member states on this issue as well, um, especially when it comes to trying to address the challenges of, I guess, what we call irregular channels of migration and, and the need to actually sort of expand legal pathways for migration. Meanwhile, what are African states, what are they looking for? Well, they're keen to see opportunities for visas, uh, other mechanisms that would actually facilitate greater trade and economic relationship and a more equal partnership with European counterparts. And what we have at the moment, I feel, is a lack of cooperation, lack of agreement on returns, reintegration, respective responsibilities of European and African countries. And I think that simply risks creating a, what I would say is a gridlock, I think, ahead of the EU-African Union summit and also potential really big obstacle for a post-Cotonou uh, uh, agreement. But again, doesn't mean that nothing can be done. Um, in fact, I think, frankly, uh, every time we watch TV and we see the tragedies uh, of people dying in the Mediterranean. Um, it's a reminder, frankly, of the urgency that we've got here to take some action at different levels. Now, again, a bit like my analogy with the private sector and state, you know, seeing everything through the lens of the states working with each other, African and European states, I don't think that's a full answer. And I think, uh, of course, migration policies are a prerogative of national governments. But what I'm seeing increasingly is local political leaders, uh, city level, municipal level, if you like, taking decisive action to collaborate across borders on this issue. So we have a group of uh, very visionary mayors now uh, from cities across Africa and Europe, uh, led by Milan, uh, Marta, I think your home city, and Freetown, uh, working together to make their cities places of opportunity where young people can thrive, where mobility is a choice um, and newcomers can actually find a home. And this has resulted in this well-known now mayor's dialogue on growth and solidarity. Um, this is a city-led initiative, as I say, delivering practical solutions, I think, for human mobility. Um, and it's trying to pool the efforts and the resources for collaboration in key sectors of urban development, uh, including skills for the green economy, for housing, for other urban services and, and also inclusive local governance and 
here I should just give a plug that because I'm really proud of the work that ODI, the Open Societies Foundation, and the Bosch Foundation have been doing together on this really important uh, city-led initiative, if you like. I'm sure Obi, if we can get her back, can say more about the role of civil society and activists, activists in the space. But again, on the private sector, if I may say, I think human mobility, we all know, can, can be a very powerful engine for economic development. Uh, there are just too many restrictions to such movement. Uh, and we should be honest about that. We should actually say what the research shows because it limits the opportunity that migration can bring for those who move and those who stay. I mean, employer, if you're an employer, you need to access talent and skills no matter where they're from. And that's all the more important now in the era of digital uh, transition, low carbon transition. I mean, the economies are gonna to have to change, they're gonna to have to adapt, they're gonna to have to develop new skills for different types of jobs. And we simply can't afford a debate which says, oh, well, we've got to have a migration policy that limits access to the labor markets, curbs opportunities, because migration can actually help um, solve those problems uh, in Europe and beyond Europe as well, and within Africa too. And I think we've also learned that with COVID-19, I mean, you know, in Europe, frankly, migrant workers have been on the front line of the COVID response in many health services, other public services, they're the very sort of essential workers that we're all relying on for our safety, our well-being. Um, their, their remittances uh, from Europe often keep families and communities alive in other parts of the world, including in Africa. And migrant communities also, we've shown, have been amongst the most vulnerable, of course, as well uh, in this crisis. Something that we really uh, also at ODI are focusing on in our work uh, on extending social protection, uh, and crucial safety nets as well. So this is a, an area that I think we need really to focus on more and more. I think action can and is going to be taken. It's got to be taken. I think the EU is now consulting on a newly proposed migration pact uh, to address the shortages of its, uh, or should we say, the problems with its uh, asylum policies to try and put in place what they call talent partnerships with third countries, including with Africa. I think we have to see that as an opportunity to make progress, even though it's always going to be slow, always going to be partial, not going to be enough for, for the likes of people like me, but it is a progress towards a, a more pragmatic approach to migration. And I think it will have some opportunity to help with economic development and actually also cooperation between uh, Europe and Africa, but also other continents too. At least that's my hope. And I, I really encourage us at ODI, working with the Bosch Foundation and others, to really push this agenda very hard as well in the years to come. Thank you, Suma. Um, I'm beginning to see some questions coming through. Uh, I'll come to those in a second. I want to just give uh, Obi an opportunity to comment on and to react to some of this, but please do put your question on the chat because I will pick them up in about two or three minutes. So Obi, uh, when you were cut off, you're talking about migration. Suma has given us a view about uh, who other than the states and particularly private sectors and mayors can play a role. Um, what do you think uh, of the role of civil society and activism to try to uh, make some progress in this very uh, complex and politically sensitive uh, domain? You, you did ask about uh, the, the role of civil society um, besides what um, government to government can do as well as uh, the increasing high profile of private sector in the relationship. I think that with civil society, what we have seen uh, has been 
in a, a very strong uh, linkage uh, between organizations that, uh, that, that care about the issues of migration and mobility and look at it increasingly from the lens of uh, the, the, the issues of, for example, uh, issues of remittances. Uh, remittances are uh, increasingly pay, playing higher and more important roles in the flows uh, for development of African countries. And uh, through remittances, we can see that even uh, shrinkage in um, ODA does not so much matter because there is that's almost going on. Um, some of the countries are above the average of 3.5% uh, of remittances, 3.5% of GDP being remittances on the continent. Some are going as far as 5%, much above their uh, the, the development assistance that they receive. Um, Nigeria, for example, uh, you know, uh, remittances uh, crowd out our the levels of um, development assistance that we get. And, and so come, uh, civil society organizations that uh, work in order to ensure that the flow of skills happen in a way that not all Africans are not tired by, you know, by this seeming uh, hostility to, to migration, which plays into domestic politics, um, are really important uh, in, in partnership. We see a lot of that happening between civil society on the continent as well as civil society in Europe. That's definitely a plus. Uh, the second part of it is um, the, the matter of even the transfer of skills and technology. We see uh, more partnerships going on uh, in with, within civil society across the two continents in supporting uh, especially technology, um, all the digital skills and, and the opportunities to, uh, to be part of the disruptive technology era. Some of, a lot of it is not coming from uh, a private sector. A lot of it is not coming from government. A lot of it is coming from partnership between civil uh, society organizations. And the more that both government and private sector can work with civil society in, in those areas, uh, the, the better for, for the two continents. Uh, the third part of um, you know, the civil society role that I see is that you know, in the conversation around rights, uh, uh, the, the global rights, the universal rights that we have. We, we have clear rights that, that govern uh, refugees and, 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 and migration. And sometimes in, in the heat of the moment of political expediency, countries in Europe forget this, and it is civil society that comes into the fray and is able to keep uh, their countries honest in the way that they are handling migration issues. So civil society does play a very important and significant role. And finally, I think that, you know, what, 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 what we see more is um, the kind of, uh, the kind of, I, I would use myself as, um, I recently spent time out in Europe. I, I was uh, with uh, Sarah and, and her team at, at, the, at the Robert Bosch uh, Foundation. I was at the Academy as a Richard von Weizsäcker Fellow. I spent our time there doing research. And in my research, there was, there was a component of it that involved um, 
experiential knowledge where my visiting with political and economic leaders um, meant a lot. It, it made a lot of difference in, in my research and in the ideation that is following from my research work. I, you know, we call it fixed politics. What it could potentially achieve is greater than anything that you know I could have done with government uh, in, 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 while I was in Berlin. It took a foundation, you know, asking me to come to spend time with them for the work that I have done that is going to be of material benefit to the continent to happen. So civil society, foundations, all of these partnerships are very important in fostering a more harmonious relationship between Africa and Europe. But I must say that until the bureaucrats also understand that there has to be a renewing of mind. There is a mindset problem within Europe that I see. Oh my goodness, the bureaucrats, you have to refresh your bureaucracy in Europe. They still don't get it that Africa is a place of opportunity, that Africa is not a humanitarian case, Africa is a business case. And when they come to that understanding, that even in terms of uh, the uh, population demographics, that it's going to get to the point, we're going to get to the threshold where Africa is going to be an important supplier of skills to the continent of Europe. And it is better to have a relationship that is deliberate and it is strategic and intentional and understanding what migration could do for Europe through relationship with Africa and designing a mechanism for it and to approach it in the way where it is considered as a negative uh, impact. Great. Thank you very much, Obi. Let me pick up a couple of questions coming through to the chat before I come to you both for a final reflection. Uh, for you, Suma, and this, I think this speaks to this uh, point of Obi about the fact that European bureaucrats got to wake up and see Africa as a place of opportunity and not as a, as a recipient of uh, humanitarianism. Um, how do we square that and the fact that actually, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there is a lot to be learned from uh, how Africa has uh, reacted well and cooperated and limited the impact on COVID with convincing the IFIs that, and for that matter, other, other, other institutions that we need more uh, support and more aid uh, towards Africa. And then Obi, for you in a minute, um, how do we make the most of this potential of civil society that you just described so emphatically to actually change some of the policies and specifically uh, changing the conditioning of development cooperation and limiting international migration, which is something that we see happening in Europe increasingly. So Suma, how do we get the IFIs to not step back but step forward? So look, I mean, uh, I think uh, Obi's hit the nail on the head. Um, it's a mindset shift. Um, for me, I, and I tell this story to my former colleagues at EBRD will know this story. I got very tired of explaining to European bureaucrats, as Obi calls them, um, that when they went round to, let's say, Rwanda, and they described it as a, as a Switzerland of Africa because of its hilly terrain, I thought the day must come when equality breaks out and a Rwandan will go to Switzerland and say, oh, this is a Rwanda of Europe. Uh, that's when I know that the mindset has really shifted. Language matters, perception matters enormously in this. Uh, and as Obi said, I think too many European bureaucrats, Brazilian ministries of finance, just do not have a sufficient understanding of how things have changed. 
it is a it is a continent of opportunity, a business case, as we put it. I think that uh, that is the biggest push we've got to make. Uh, people are still so outdated in their thinking about what is happening in Africa generally. Uh, secondly, that requires, I think, Europe to think of Africa much more in the way it does, let's say, the Western Balkans, the Eastern Partnership countries, you know, uh, those are Georgia, Ukraine, Belarus, places like that, what it would call its neighborhood. This Africa is part of Europe's valued neighborhood because of the business case, because of the political case, and because of the centuries-old linkages between the two continents. Uh, that is something that needs uh, to be hammered home again and again. The third thing I would say is for the multilaterals, you particularly I'd, I'd say, there is a real need, and I've been on about this for God knows how long, about a, thinking about uh, an, a skills-based architecture for the way multilaterals operate. At the moment, the multilateral system operates uh, in swimming lanes. So there's African Development Bank for Africa. Uh, and you, EPRD, in a way, broke that by, of course, operating not just in Eastern Europe, but in Central Asia and Turkey, and then in North Africa. Why? Because EBRD has the skills to help with private sector development. And so I was championing very much, as some people know, the further expansion of EBRD into Sub-Saharan Africa. Who, you know, which institution was the strongest supporter of this idea? The African Development Bank, because they thought it was complementary to their skills in the public sector, particularly. And I hope it's going to happen still. I think it will happen within the next two years. But we've got to start thinking of a much more joined up architecture whereby the multilaterals use their skills to do more. And uh, I think uh, EBRD, IFC, the more private sector focused multilaterals have a great role to play in Africa going forward as well. The last point I would want to make is there is always a danger in these conversations, I think, of uh, thinking some sort of you know hermetically sealed continental arrangement between Europe and Africa. Actually, I think it's really important to move beyond the phrase strategic autonomy that we've started to use in Europe, I think, too much. And now with a new administration coming in in the second half of January in the States to engage with the Biden administration and actually reach out and try and create more of a triangle between Africa, the US and Europe uh, in that relationship. Um, as was beginning to happen, I think, in the Obama administration days, I think there's a real opportunity here to rebuild that uh, case, not just in multilateral institutions, but also bilaterally between European, African uh, states and United States as well. So I think there are several things we can try and push on and, and should push on as part of this innovation agenda for Europe and Africa. Thank you, Suma. Um, so, Obi, on to this question about how do we make sure that this um, effort and these changes that civil society is already working on and bringing about can actually change policies and specifically uh, reversing the conditioning of development um, uh, on limiting international migration. Matt, uh, I think that in the case of um, in the case of people who don't have data, it is important that we should uh, use data, we should use a lot of um, evidence to show to them that uh, the benefit migration uh, to receiving countries is actually uh, a pretty uh, correlated uh, to economic growth. And that 
in in most cases for Africa, the the people who move, the people who migrate, are the are the ones with with a desire to gain skills, and that when they gain skills, according to the basic theory of um you know migration and economic growth, their skills will ultimately be beneficial to the labor market of the countries that they have migrated to. So that's a benefit. That is fixed. That's, a, you know, we have enough evidence on that. But for the ones who are not persuaded by economic evidence, I don't know what you're going to say to them. For some of the people, the economic evidence is pretty clear, but they just don't want a certain movement from a certain part of the world. So that one is in the realm of the politics of these countries. And what you do with those ones, I have no real idea because i was in berlin and uh, you know in a certain conversation someone said to me that it, it doesn't even matter how much benefit migration brings we just feel more comfortable being amongst ourselves what do you do that's anecdotal but frankly speaking i imagine that if you took a survey of some of the people that politicians have to respond to in their domestic politics, the same prejudiced mindset would, would be there. So um, I don't know that this conditioning of development to uh, uh, development cooperation to international migration is going to change soon until we, you can actually have a real conversation. I think the conversation will not come from people like me. The conversation has to come from people like you who understand and know the data and know the evidence and can take the evidence, take it out of even the hands of the politicians. Let the policy think tanks on the continent of Europe be, be louder in stating clearly that it is totally prejudicial to the interest of Europe, that it should try to create walls of, of, of entry uh, into Europe by Africans. The third thing to say is that most Africans actually don't really like to live at, abroad. <laughs> that, that, that's something that people don't realize. Most Africans really don't like to live abroad. It is the incentive uh, uh, to, you know, that, that makes them vote with their feet. A lot of the Africans that you see bringing remittances home would sooner come home if in their mind the conditions at home improved, which therefore means that we can spend a little bit more time having conversations around how the governance processes, how the politics of the continent, how the accountability, the transparency, the probity in governance, you know, becomes a major part of the, 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 um, the common interest. Of, of the two continents. How do we ensure that what Europe does is that it supports and, and you know, supports civil society that's determined, voices of citizens determined to see good governance of Africa, African political space. That often does not get a high place in the current strategy. What 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 I find very um, interesting is how there is much more preference for little projects that put a flag as having been done in the health sector by countries more than 
project that would enable citizens in the country to take a leadership role in making sure that the health sector of their country can work. Well, I think we need to look at that again uh, in the realm of policy. Thank you. Um, thank you, Obi. Let me ask you both very quickly because we are running out of time. Um, Suma, you, uh, I, I want both of you to just look ahead and you already gave us a sense of the expectations we can have of the Biden administration. So we start 2021 uh, with, uh, with that. We have COP uh, further down the line during the year. So a number of opportunities. Of course, we have vaccines that uh, hopefully will uh, turn around the current pandemic. Uh, look over to 2030. Uh, what what are the one or two things that we really, you know, think should change and different in the, in this in, in this relationship between Africa and Europe? Well, I hope by twenty thirty we're not talking about migration anymore as the defining issue of this relationship, uh, because we've got to find uh, better solutions to that. One, two. I hope that uh, we are seeing economic and trading opportunities being taken uh, as a way of helping to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals, um, which are actually both European and African. These are goals, after all, signed up to by uh, both continents. So that's going to be very important. And three, I think, um, you know, I would really like to stop thinking of um, Africa, exactly as Obi said, as some sort of humanitarian case. You know, I don't that's not the way I approach it. And I've been working on Africa since the since I left university back in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, we need people to understand that there are huge opportunities here, uh, huge profitable opportunities uh, for economic development, but also for companies to make profits and so on and employ people, too. So that is what I'm looking for, uh, a real push towards the SDGs, both in Europe and Africa, support underpinned by private sector development all the way through, and a much more grown-up uh, conversation and understanding about patterns of migration. Remember, the actual, um, if you like, the futures of Africa and Europe are intertwined, and not just through people, but also through climate uh, and other um, trading relationships. So we have to get to a position by 2030 when that is the conversation we're having, and we can build on some successes, build, built on good data as well going forward. Great, Suma. Obi, uh, one last thought, or maybe two, about what you want to see happening in 20, by 2030. I, by 2030, I definitely want a different Europe strategy toward Africa, not one that is, um, you know, uh, fretting about Africans leaving Africa to come and take over Europe. That's never going to happen. Uh, from what we see of data. And so I want a different set of uh, mindset within the European bureaucracies across the countries and in Brussels. Um, just have a different mindset where you clearly have a partnership with Africa where you're saying that, the, uh, that, that, that Europe and Africa should be uh, a significant percentage of global GDP. As we, might, as we move toward uh, the, the, the greater importance of digital economy, um, and then we look at green economy. What are the kinds of propositions, or what the kind of uh, proposals, what kind of uh, strategies should be common strategies to ensure that our own part of the world really are leading 
parts of the world, in digital economy and in green economy. We need to do things together. I think that are big ideas. I am tired of small projects in Europe just for political currency. It is important that we should uh, frame the world of 2030 as a world where we're going to see many more many more uh, challenging issues. People talk about the next normal. There are many next, next, next normals that we need to already begin to anticipate. Uh, the second thing is that now that we know that health pandemics will make a mess of anyone uh, that does not recognize that we're as healthy as the, uh, the least healthy amongst us, uh, you cannot create barriers against the virus, as we can see. You can't erect walls. The barrier does, they, 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 um, the, the virus doesn't need a visa to, to go in and come out. It was an Italian that first arrived in Nigeria and started the distribution uh, uh, that happened in our own case. So we see that it flows both ways. We need to have common systems. We need to do more penetration and uh, an integration of, of our systems to enable us uh, have countervailing measures, um, systems that can anticipate uh, a, a real risks of pandemics in, in ways that are not, uh, uh, you know, very, um, very superficial uh, as, the, as, as they currently are. And the third one is that we need to encourage uh, the, the, the relationship, the budding relationship between, uh, between the young in Europe and the young in Africa. Uh, the reason that this is important is that, look, for people uh, of a certain generation, uh, the relationship with Europe will always be viewed from the lens of uh, the, 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 the transatlantic slave trade and, and then the colonialism that followed. Uh, and so this gets in the way sometimes of a genuine trust, uh, uh, you know, a, a worthy relationship. But with the younger generation who are beginning to find themselves and have common problems of the world that they want to solve, we should enable that. We should provide the kind of enabling. We should uh, provide the kind of support, uh, the instruments that would enable them to, to do things together, build common, uh, identify common problems and solve them together. The young people should find themselves across the two continents. And finally, Europe and its private sector uh, attitude. Uh, you know, government attitude toward private sector from Europe uh, doing business in Africa needs to be more sophisticated than it currently is. I think that Europe, with its many decades in finance, should be able to design more sophisticated instruments that would support private sector investment on the continent. Because the truth is, the, Europe has no business complaining about any other country. My business as an African is to hold the governments in my country to accountability, regardless of what country it is doing business with. So when the Chinese come to, the, to, to this country, I hold them totally accountable. I must make sure that my government is not being silly in giving away its own people in, in, in the name of uh, transactions with China, but Europe must live up to its billing and design systems to support its private sector. I know that many SMEs in Europe would love to expand into Africa, but they don't have the support of their governments. And yet 
you have all these high profile visits. The visits don't make a difference to the poor. It is the opportunities of jobs, jobs and more jobs that would make all the difference. And we know that that's possible through private sector relationships. Thank, Thank you very much. You. Thank you. Thank you, Obi. And on that last point, uh, Suma, you have a nice uh, little agenda item for your ex-colleague at the EBRD too. I learned three things today uh, very rapidly. One is there is one thing that COVID has changed is that Africa is clearly a place uh, of opportunity, um, including to learn from everything they have managed uh, so well on the COVID uh, pandemic. And indeed, that Switzerland is the Rwanda of Europe. Second, on migration, things are actually happening already. We've spoken about cities, we've heard about civil society, and their partnerships on skills and, um, and technology transfers. Uh, private sectors is could perhaps do a little bit more, but is on the way. Um, and therefore, all this needs to be you know, used to actually make some actual progress. And on that, the third things I've learned, of course, is that the stumbling block continues to be in the narratives and the perceptions that people have. And it is on the likes of us, the think tanks, but also the civil societies, those private sectors, those mayors who are working uh, to make progress in new mobility to uh, help shift that narrative in very practical terms. Um, this could we couldn't have a better start of this uh, conversation that will carry on throughout 2021 in collaboration with the Bosch Foundation, Gulbenkian, um, and OSF and others. The next appointment in January will be a conversation specifically about cities um, and what they are doing in the human mobility space across Africa and Europe, followed by another one on digitalization and skills and finally on climate change, probably around March. So watch this space and join us uh, on this ongoing conversation. Clearly innovation has a great role to play in shaping this partnership. Um, what is left for me to do is to thank um, Obi and Suma in particular, and of course, Sandra uh, for you know, working with us on this. Obi, it was a shame not to see you on video, but let me reassure you that your voice came across very loud and very clear. Um, so thank you, uh, Suma and Obi, thank you to the audience. And I look forward to connecting again with all of you in January in the next step of this journey. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Mm -hmm.